Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Ian Ryan. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary popal. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. It's a community radio station and we are all about our local community and local Australian books. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more about the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, treaty was never made, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Ian Ryan is a purveyor of hard-boiled noir fiction with a particularly Australian bent. His novels Four Days and The Student were shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award, the premier award for crime writing in Australia. Ian has a new book out, so today we'll be discussing The Spiral. Irma Bridges is tired. She just got off a red eye to answer as-yet-unknown charges of misconduct from her university a university where Irma is writing a book on the history of reader-deployed young adult fiction, a university where young women are disappearing at an alarming rate, and a university where one young woman, Irma's missing research assistant, is about to reappear and brutally attack Irma for seemingly no discernible reason. Join me as we discover Ian Ryan's The Spiral. Hello, Ian speaking. Hey, Ian, it's Andrew calling from 2SER. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you, Andrew. How are you? I'm very, ex- I'm very excited to be talking about the spiral. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, <That's> good. <laughs> I'm gonna give you, give you just like a little behind my my eyeballs sort of insight into my thinking. So, as I as I sort of thought about it this morning, I couldn't help but wonder what you'd hidden in that particularly wonderful kind of section between about, what is it, about page 190 to page 235. And so I went back and I, I, I reread through it and I wasn't disappointed. And I, I, I think that's what you intended. I think that's what you want to hear from readers, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that people have dug down into the novel sufficiently to even think to do that is, is, is more than I could sort of ask for from a reader like that's incredible <laughs> the people are doing it i'm getting messages from people all the time that, saying that they found the section that is wonderful i um i was actually so i was i was actually um interviewing and chatting with um josh pamari last week and and your your book came up and he he was talking about the spiral and his anticipation of reading it and he said yeah i've got this idea that it's it's a, it's a novel that's going to have a lot of big ideas and I've got to thank Josh because that really got me thinking um, and it probably sent me on a, a different trail with, um, with my ideas and my questions. So I hope, I hope that was reflected in, uh, in the interview. Oh, no, that's, that's completely fine. And I 100% consider myself a crime writer. Like I, I, that's, yes, I, that's the only genre that I really identify with. So, I mean, not that <laughs> I think what genre you identify with is probably not a very important it's really interesting. Like the the spiral is, I mean, it's not it's not that it's a novel without a crime, but it's it's so much more than, I guess. I think what what I think of that that you know 
sort of very um, compact word crime uh, encapsulates. Awesome. Um, and I guess all, no, I've, I've got a few. I've got a few ideas that we'll say for the interview proper. But do you want to? Do you want to just jump in? Mm. All right. Yeah, fantastic. let's do it. All right, terrific. Irma Bridges is tired. She just got off a red eye to answer as yet unknown charges of misconduct from her university. A university where Irma's writing a book on the history of reader-deployed young adult fiction. That's choose-your-own-adventure books, if, uh, if you remember them. A university where young women are disappearing at an alarming rate. A university where one young woman, Irma's missing research assistant, is about to reappear and brutally attack Irma for seemingly no discernible reason. In the spiral, it felt both grounded and high concept. I'm so excited to get into these ideas. It's also worth noting, though, there is so much going on in the spiral that I'm going to have to work really hard to avoid spoiling any of the surprises in your entwined narratives of a kickboxing academic and an androgynous barbarian. And yes, dear listener, you heard that correctly. <laughs> I, I want to I start us off with Irma. And acknowledging sure. that there is a whole other barbarian narrative that we will get to. Um, you start off at a breakneck pace. So Irma from page one is reacting. She's seemingly on instinct, um, sort of maybe to kicking in with some of her Muay Thai training there. She's reacting to the disciplinary meeting, to Jenny's disappearance, to her research going off the rails. She's doing what she has to do to keep going, but it's not like she has much choice, at least on the surface. And there, I started to think that seems like a bit of a key here. Did you want to explore this world of extremes and how they impact on our choices? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the name of the game, really. Uh, I, the hard-boiled sort of noir crime fiction that I'm most drawn to almost always puts the protagonist in this headspace. Uh, you know, sometimes towards the end of the novel, but I'm a real fan of this UK writer called David Peace, who who seems to you know, really quickly get the character into an unstable... It's almost like the character starts in a bad place and then goes completely off the deep end by the end of the novels. And, uh, yeah, I was... I'm, it, you know, I just wanted a, a fascinating kind of headspace to work with as a writer to put people under this kind of pressure and see what happens. I, I'm also dealing with an academic, which I can say this because I am an academic. If I just sort of started it in the routine, everyday life of academia, I I don't think it would make for much of an opening to a to a like a thriller. I can I can see where that would be coming from, and I guess you. Well, no, you tell me, because I am not an academic, but Irma struck me as as not your typical conception of an academic, whether that, that um, I guess, fictional idea is true to reality. Where does, where does Irma sit in the world of academia? I think that academia, like, well, she, I mean, she's a characterization, of course, but uh, I, in my experience, there's plenty of people that are like 50% of what Irma is uh, in actually out there in the world of academia. I mean, it is a bit of a hotbed of uh, social anxiety, eccentricity, um, you know, quite sort of brittle or, or brisk personality types. I mean, these are all people that I love and deal with like all the time. So uh, I think that her character is, I hope is like kind of somewhat realistically and she's definitely come from you know, interactions with people that I 
that I know or have met or have observed from elsewhere. So yeah, she's not, I don't think like her, that personality type where she is young and very uh, driven uh, at that point is at all uncommon, especially in the humanities. Like there's this kind of weird, the engine of the humanities, of course, is sort of self-interest almost. Like, you know, you're obsessed with something and the career path is very, very difficult and you virtually need to port that obsession into like working super hard in in the first phase of your career to kind of get a foothold. So it does lead to these, you know, quite, you know, highly motivated uh, kind of people. And I guess uh, that conception or misconception, as I might have introduced there around the idea of academics, that's something that you are working to confound in the spiral. This idea that narrative stories gives us an, an insight into worlds that we don't know. I mean, how many readers talk about books transporting them to worlds they don't know? But perhaps there is a mistake in thinking we know a world that we have a complete idea and I mean, if, if anyone's going in thinking, oh, a book about an academic, I bet there'll be lots of, I never remember. I think it's leather patches on tweed jackets. I know there's a great, there's yeah. a great Simpsons joke about that. But yeah. confounding those ideas that we get from stories is very, very uh, much in the ballpark of the spiral. Yeah, well, I mean, that, and it's also in the ballpark of crime fiction itself. Like the police procedural, when it's done properly, and, and when, it, I, when it's done most of the time, is sort of a reflexive kind of investigation of the, you know, the almost moral corruption of police work. Like it, it is sort of a, a revisionist kind of genre, I think. And I, yeah, I brought that into, into the academic space. Like I was really, really curious about presenting academia in ways that it hasn't, that I hadn't seen it before. So like as routine office work, as quite, uh, sort of neoliberal, sort of atomized, uh, like that sort of workplace where it's very quite combative, quite uh, competitive, and and you know, and like any other workplace, like particularly kind of particular personalities sort of do well in that environment. And of course, sort of knowing what Irma, you know, what was going to happen later in the novel, you know, Irma sort of she wouldn't have been like the chill laid back type of academic at all, in my opinion. Like I think she, you know, she it's about trying to, you know, tease out these elements that I would need later in the book. So you also have a barbarian. <laughs> I do. Zero <laughs> emerges when Irma is unconscious, either sleeping or insert dramatic pause here. Sarah seems to embody violence, but violence with a purpose. And Sarah is also an extension of the stories that Irma loved as a child. It has has to do with the the narratives that she's exploring through um, the book that she's writing. Do you think stories influence and embody ourselves in our subconscious mind in that way? Like, do you do you have an internal barbarian that emerges when you go to sleep? Uh, not a barbarian, but and I admittedly don't. For someone who has just written a book so invested in like an unconscious narrative, I don't dream a great deal myself. Like it's not a strong sort of part of my day-to-day life. Uh, but yeah, I was just curious about like how Irma would would deal with the situation that she had and her investment in narrative as 
both like a personal thing with her backstory as as a sort of avid reader of these choose your own adventure and fighting fantasy novels and the way that she is trying to kind of control the her narrative and trying to sort of she's in a very like unstable chaotic space in her life and yet she's trying to like kind of control it it just made sense to me that in her unconscious that she there would be some kind of there would be a narrative that she was sort of trying to impose over that in some way and i really i don't you know i have to be completely honest i can't remember the exact origin of why i decided it was a good idea to put this stuff about the fantasy barbarian into the novel but as soon as i started doing it and found the voice for the zero sections, I started to really get into it. Like, you know, I mean, maybe it's self-serving, but it, I just, I really liked writing about a hard-boiled sort of high fantasy world. I thought it was really curious. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. really, I just personally just, I was like, this is odd. It seems odd to me, but I'm into it. <laughs> I had not thought about the hard-boiled elements so much as I was looking at... Um, I guess, I guess the way you were playing with unconscious, but also the way, I mean, by the end of the novel, we come to appreciate how brilliantly layered Cero is in terms of being, I guess, almost an alter ego for Irma. Yeah, I mean, it, he, well, actually, Cero sort of ungendered, uh, so cut that. Cero <laughs> uh, is, definitely represents something. So, and and it's something that, I, that needs to be explored and brought to the forefront of Irma's story. And it became a really uh, valid way, in my opinion, to sort of, to, to tell that, to describe that journey, really. That, that's what it got to. And I couldn't think of a, once I had the ball rolling, it almost became like I couldn't think of, a, of any other way to do it. Mm. And I, you know, admittedly, I was sort of just feeling my way through some parts of it as well. I wasn't really 100% sure how I was going to tell the story, but it all seemed to be working. And and it was really over the course of edits and rewrites that I was able to kind of, you know, bring, I suppose, some of my own sort of subconscious and unconscious ideas together in a more kind of compact way. Which I, is one of the themes of the novel. <laughs> I was just <laughs> really. going to say, I love the I love the way the motif of choice and control extends so far as to your original drafting, and then in through your editing process. Um, Irma's Irma's research, then, so we're, we're she's writing a book on reader deployed young adult fiction, and we've talked about the choose your own adventure books a little bit. I loved them when I was a kid. I'd variously read them. In earnest, so I'd be I would be a strict rule follower. Um, I would go back and then explore. So, all right, what choice didn't I take? And then just the outright cheating, which I know you you do also discuss in the spiral. So I did love later on in the spiral when you dive into your own choose your own adventure scenario. It struck me though this segment of the novel is always destined to land at the same place. Page 235 inevitably arrives and the story regains a a somewhat linear momentum. So now, in this section, you've turned the lens on the reader and we must become responsible for the choices. How do you think that 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 might affect the typical reader? Are Are readers looking for choice or do they actually like that narratives give them an escape from that responsibility? That's the tension that I'm really... It's one of the tensions, sorry, that I'm 
I'm like most interested in exploring in the book. I mean, control and fate is the other sort of side of that dynamic that I'm interested in. Uh, and that almost started off as my own uh, questions about it. I mean, yeah, it sounds very odd, but I did, you know, you can tell if, when you get really into the guts of the book that it is a story about an author trying to understand their own process and their own desire for control. I mean, writing a novel is a very controlling thing to do with your spare time. Like, there's no doubt about it. And it, and that aspect of uh, the controlling impulse, it, it only manifests in that part of my life. In, my, in the rest of my life, I am pretty chill. And, and yet when I write these novels, it, I mean, it seems to be entirely about control. Like I outline them. I'm sort of meticulous in the way that I edit them. I, you know, just about everyone that I've ever turned a novel, novel over to sort of remarks on how clean the manuscript is because I just can't. It's just all about dominating <laughs> the manuscript, really, and beating it and having it uh, be this thing that I'm completely you know, completely satisfied with in some sort of capacity. And, yeah, and then, you know, I had, I, I, as the novel was sort of, as I was moving through it, I had questions. I somehow got through that and started to get through, you know, and start to think, well, you know, the reader wants control as well. Like the, the reader, especially in these, you know, choose your own adventure novels, it sort of gives you, it sort of lends that weird, promise that you're going to get some of the control back from the author. And, and then when you really think about it, that absolutely doesn't happen. Like the, the, the branches of the narrative are, are completely pre-programmed by the author to go to like various destinations. So it seemed to like completely fit with the, the broader theme of the book. I, I'm going to go way off script here because in the back of my mind through reading and thinking of questions to ask you and just listening to you then, Ian, I've, I've had gaming in my head because I'm like, well, whatever happened to Choose Your Own Adventures? Like, I'm sure you can still read them. But I think a lot of that itch for a lot of younger and, and probably older uh, lovers of narrative is being scratched by gaming and the narratives that emerge through through gaming and online gaming. And I remember having a chat to a, a game developer mate about where narratives go and, and will we ever get to a point where we have an algorithm and a heuristic that is able to to learn from the choices that are made. Did you have gaming at all in mind or were you thinking about modern iterations? Because, of course, the spiral is set some more, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, I, not really. I don't play games um, in my uh, later in life. And, I mean, that may be an aspect to it. I mean, there's a couple of different places that I got to, how I got to the gaming, like just a weird interest. It was something that was taboo in my house as well. Like I had um, religious, I had, my mother's very religious and she was quite cautious about the fighting fantasy gaming novels in particular because this was the early 80s and we're still in the Dungeons and Dragons moral panic was still floating around. Like, yeah. so they were loaded up, you know, with this, you know, this great, <laughs> all that great stuff where you it's even better because you're not supposed to be reading it and I that sense of, of it being kind of forbidden but like wonderful at the same time was something I think just later in life I, I was curious about and so I read a, 
book about the history of fighting fantasy, uh, just for fun, essentially. And and then looked and did just did weird research and found that they were just these ginormous bestsellers, like just monstrous bestsellers. Um, you know, the Harry Potter of their time, really. And thought, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people out there where this will resonate with them. Like there are literally millions of these books that were printed. You can go into a secondhand bookstore and barely ever find them. Like people have retained these things like Irma does in the book. So I just thought it would be like a touchstone that people would be able to get their head around, really. Um, I don't know if that is entirely the case. I don't, yeah, there's also a lot of people who don't understand (laughs) what's happening at all when they get to that branching narrative section of the book. Like it, yeah, I'll admit there are some people that are a bit thrown by it, uh, but it's super odd to me because this sort of very kind of confusing, some people saying innovative, some people saying experimental passage of the novel, to me is just, you know, YA culture from 1980. It's, it's something that a 14-year-old kid could readily understand in the 80s. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought it was very innovative in the sense that you had brought it into what I guess ostensibly looks like a very different novel, but it was very recognisable to me. Can we then can we get then into this uh, well narrative perspective, the way you have written yeah. this novel and the and the way that it gets into our heads as we read because that's key to to Sarah's narrative. It's key to that section of of choice. Because Irma's story is narrated in the first person. She's not always the most likable person, but we are drawn to or at least compelled to relate to her as we, we have all of her interior thoughts and justifications. And I think, I think that sort of interiority invites us to identify. But Sero is us. Second person, gender neutral, Sero invites this direct identification despite the entirely alien circumstance. So... What does narrative perspective mean to you uh, when you're writing those characters? And and did you want to use it? Like, how did you use it to get into our heads? I, well, yeah, the first person present tense narrative style is just, in my experience, very effective at, at building that empathy because, yeah, I mean, it's just happening right now inside your, in the character's head. I mean, there's, there's virtually, it's like a brute force, type of uh, empathy. <laughs> like it can't, you know, there's, there's virtually, you know, even if you don't like the character, you're just 100% there like the whole time. Like, and I knew that Irma would be tricky and I had tried to write the novel in different voices. Like I, I think I tried, I, I probably got like maybe 10 or 15,000 words in, in a different narrative style and it just didn't work. I was really overly cautious about repeating myself with the student, which is written in a, a similar voice. Uh, but then I, you know, it just didn't work and I kind of reverted back to what I thought would be effective. And uh, and in terms of the second person stuff, that, you know, that took a bit of getting to, but it really was because, um, you, know, you know, when you tell people that there's a section of your novel that's in second person, it can elicit a bit of an eye roll because that is probably in the grand hierarchy of things. One of the the least favored narrative styles is the second person. It's like, if you can read the literary like textbooks and manuals about writing that explicitly tell you never to write in that style. 
but you know, once I'd kind of committed to the idea that it was going to have this choose your own adventure component in it, that locked me, you know, I felt into the second person. And then it, that itself started to raise some pretty interesting questions about, you know, the reader's uh, culpability <laughs> and like what I could do with that. Like when, you know, when I'm directly addressing the reader, it, you know, I could sort of subtly suggest things, uh, move some of my own shame and guilt onto their plate, so to speak. It's strange. It, it feels like it should be something that automatically puts identification on the reader, but it is, as you, as you say, it's this, it's this really tricky area where it can just result in a, a complete kind of pushback, revol- revile away from this invasion because you're, you're making us, we are Cero. We are, we are walking and making decisions and ultimately getting very, very complicated in parts of the narrative that I'm not going to spoil. Yeah, I think, I mean, we can talk abstractly about the fact that Cero represents violence and if there's sort of a, like a central kind of takeaway from the book in terms of what I'm saying about human nature is that I feel that the the capacity for violence is in all of us Mm -hmm. and that, you know, and that's sort of what Sarah represents. Like I'm trying to sort of suggest, I suppose that, you know, that the reader, uh, you know, shouldn't, should start to at least consider their own culpability with, with the degree to which, you know, violence is enticing and dramatic uh, and that, you know, that there's a desire to read it and see it and all of these kinds of issues when, when they're riding along with this character that increasingly enters these violent scenarios. Can I complicate this a little bit? Because I was really intrigued by the way Sarah's narrative is marked by a search for self. The barbarian has no memory of who they are. And this quest, it's single-minded, it's brutal, Seros is basically slaying anyone who gets in their way or might, you know, be able to be a stepping stone to finding who they are. But Seros is also surprisingly vulnerable to those who might offer a solution. So I just I just wondered how Seros behavior is kind of reflected on feelings and dynamics of power that that in in a sense being so dominating but then also powerless and vulnerable. Yeah, I think well, I think that's kind of what violence is, though. I mean, it is dominating, and then it is just coarse and chaotic, and 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 not very useful, like with outside the scope of its own desires. Really, I mean, it it that yeah, he's wandering that that fantasy or that unconscious landscape, looking for something. Oh, sorry. Oh God, I gendered that character again. It's so hard. <laughs> You're going to have to cut all that again. It's so interesting. No. It's so interesting that that keeps happening, though, because I guess there is yeah. there are tendencies to want to um, put gender on ideas like violence. Um, I was really interested in in the violence in Irma's life as well, and in many of the ways she plays scenes. Um, it, it's simply being, you know, at the beginning of the the novel the victim of brutal violence and then clawing her, uh, her way back and becoming a more competent uh, proponent of violence. I mean, it, the first narrative that pops to mind there is is like Batman. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not, violence is not exclusively male, but, but that ability to gender violence like that seems to be something that we're both kind of flipping our minds to in this automatic way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is gendered, really. I mean, it, it, it has, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but I mean, that's the society that we live in um, to some degree and, and the history that we've inherited and so on. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure why I'm, well, I mean, and I'm really interested, in, I was really interested in unraveling that in the book, like, which was why I did choose that sort of ungendered uh, aspect of the character, but also because it's in the novels themselves, like, we, and remarked upon numerous times in the book. So it just felt like it was thematically the correct way to proceed, uh, and which was probably the guiding principle, I have to admit, other than rather than any kind of lofty statement about violence in general. Uh, the one thing I probably could parachute into this that might be helpful is I was really interested in the idea that Irma might be suffering from some sort of um, post-traumatic stress or, or trauma. And I to, to read up on that or to research on it, I read a little bit around return service people and and soldiering and and things like that where there's some really interesting stuff written about you know what this type of trauma does to people i mean i feel like we're in a very you know we've advanced this kind of discussion like a long way i think and what i discovered was that you know there there are these archetypes that we used to use to talk about people who committed violence on behalf of the community that we're now either deeply uncomfortable with or calling into question or just, yeah, that it's a very unsettled kind of archetype or space or person. Uh, And as soon as I saw this, this archetype, I knew that that's what Irma was like immediately irrelevant of everything else about her character, what she did, what she liked, what had happened to her. Like I just, whatever that archetype is that completely embodied what, Emma was going to be in the book. Fascinating. I want to come back to the reader. I was really interested as you were, um, as you were, as you, as you call it, misgendering Sarah there. One of the things, <laughs> well, one of the things you, one of the things you invite is this radical reader identification. Like the spiral involves the reader through the empathy of the first person narrative, through the uh, sort of the dragging, you know, it's like you're, you've put your fist outside of the book and pulled us in with Sarah's second person narrative. You've given us our own choices. You offer the reader the power of choice precisely at the moment. Irma is completely denied choice and agency. You balance this, this lack of external agency with ideas of internal choice um, this sort of movement towards perspective and personal insight. And I, I think, again, that's for so many readers, that's why they come to reading. They, they're looking for insight and perspective in another story that might give them insight on themselves. Were you, I mean, this feels like a, this feels like a very open, inviting, but then discomforting book for the reader. And I was really wondering, like, were you, was that something you were, you were hoping to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, I have those feelings about myself, as I discussed earlier, about what it means to write, whether it's even uh, like a noble act or a moral act, or I feel uncomfortable with the idea that the author is necessarily doing a productive and worthwhile moral 
sort of thing. Like, I, I mean, I don't think that it's that we're monsters, but I don't readily accept the idea that just in and of itself, the expression or the exploration of literary ideas, like any of this stuff is in itself, like just net positive. Uh, and yeah, and then sort of throwing that open, that sort of just leaked into the idea of what the reader's role might be in the book. Uh, but, you know, I think you can tell from the way I'm talking <laughs> that a lot of this is unsettled in me and that I probably don't know exactly what I'm talking about and won't for like a year or two. Like, I think, you know, this is what my books sort of, the relationship I have with my books is that they're just a way of batching off a set of reflections and feelings that, uh, that you know, that obviously that I'm interested in putting into an external form of some sort and that, you know, they make more sense down the track, really. Uh, and, and it's also why I'm really interested in genre fiction because I don't want that to be boring. Like, you know, if, if nothing else, if I'm just going to batch up a whole bunch of my bullshit and put it into like an external book, I at least want that thing to be uh, entertaining, you know, irrespective of my own relationship with it. Well, the spiral is, it is so delightfully unsettling for the reader. I just, I, I feel like any reader should want to get into this because it completely changes your relationship as a reader. Uh, look, we asked, we are discussing The Spiral. It is Ian Ryan's latest book and it is fabulous. I mean, Ian, thank you so much for indulging my my questions around what you were achieving here. It's been, it's been wonderful. Oh, thank you. I, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk again in two years and I'll do a better job of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this great conversation with Ian Ryan. Ian's novel, The Spiral, is out now from Echo Publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. So whatever podcast app you're on, it means there's a new Great Conversation every week, and it helps us get in front of more eyes. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations for you. Till then... Happy reading.